Today's podcast is presented by Podco. Podco is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast and I'm so excited that I discovered it. As an indie podcaster, it allows me to monetize my podcast with a flat rate. And so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podco. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add our podcast immigrantly in the how did you hear about podgo section of the application. I was in New York on 9-11. It, it was personal for me. I had to learn a lot really quickly. And part of that learning is, is realizing that very few people are telling the truth. We feel shame if we have to look into our own behavior. And I have done a ton of that over the last year and a half. And I know that many others are doing that. But some people won't. Many people can't. It's, it's painful. Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I'm your host, Sadia Khan, with yet another episode of the podcast. Here's the thing. This episode is one you won't want to miss if you are someone who is ready to grow past the progressive status quo. Paula Wirt is a multifaceted woman. She is an artist, a mother, former editor and an activist. Now, in this country, we have this tendency to value the perspectives of those we've labeled as the elite politicians celebrities, news anchors, and other people with large platforms and audiences. And don't get me wrong, I'm not hating on them. I'm just presenting my perspective and how I see things. But what I hope we've learned by now is that those titles don't make someone's perspective more valuable than you and I. And I hope we have definitely understood that those elite titles come hand in hand with systemic inequality, nepotism, and support by the billionaire-owned corporate media. Again, this is not a socialist rant. Just bear with me. I am, as a podcast host and founder, so proud to be a part of a collective initiative where we are equalizing the platform to share ideas. You know this, right? Indie podcasts are one way you would hear the perspectives of those who have lived through key societal issues in a different way. My conversation with Paula is exactly that. It is so refreshing because it's for everyone. Some of the things we talked about include the way our understanding of history is shaped by our proximity to it, whether history and current events have any objectivity to them, collective denial in privileged groups and the role of vulnerability in the revolution. Isn't that amazing? 
I hope I really hope you find this episode as expansive as I did. I had a blast speaking with her and I think that energy really translates in this audio. And I would love to hear your thoughts. On any of the topics we speak about, you can always reach out to us on Apple Podcasts or engage with us on any of our social media pages. Your feedback matters a lot. So thanks for tuning in and let's get started. So we are rolling and I'm really excited to have you here, Paula. Before I dive into our conversation, I think it's important for our listeners to understand who you are and what you do. Of course. So if you could tell us who you are in your career and who you are outside of it. Well, I started my career a long time ago as an editor and then transitioned to graphic design and web design. But um, about 12 years ago, I stopped working professionally to be a full-time mom. Mm. And I've always maintained an artist practice on the side, I guess you'd say. So I wanted to be able to have more time for that and more time for motherhood. And... um, Soon after that, found myself doing a lot of volunteer work to support my kids' schools, and then that grew into more political activism. Mm. So I joined a group right after uh, the election of Donald Trump called Progressive Women of Pelham, and now I find myself in a leadership role Mm. with Progressive Women of Pelham, as well as being a mom and an artist. This is so fascinating because even as an artist, you have this wide range of artistic practice or expression. You have your studio, you're a graphic designer, you do web design, you teach art, which is so fascinating to me. Um, I don't think I am creative at all. I'm always impressed with people who have such broad spectrum of artistic expression. Do you have a practice that feels more aligned with who you are as a person? Sure. I think my work as an artist has always been kind of two-pronged, both looking at outside forces and how they impact individuals, as well as looking inside and how I perceive the world Mm. as an individual who has a very specific experience. So, um, you know, I'll do work that is specifically political And I'll also do work that's very personal and not necessarily making any kind of political statement. Mm. So Paula, break it down for us. When you say political work, can you give us an example? Sure. In um, in 2002, I began a graduate program in fine arts, an MFA program. Mm. And that was shortly after 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, and... um, I was in New York on 9-11. It, it was personal for me. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was always sort of attuned to global politics like most Americans. It was really far away and sad or confusing. But when it came here, it was urgent. It suddenly became urgent. And I had to learn a lot really quickly. And part of that learning is, is realizing that very few people are telling the truth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you realize that that even truth is has perspective. It has 
truth is a different experience from two different people, but it's not necessarily, one is necessarily false, right? So, so in graduate school, I was thinking about all these things around security and perspective and what, what really is, what really is security? Do we, Mm. do we ever really have it? And I built, um, I, I built a wall inside a window in the front of our school, um, to protect, quote unquote, the school, but the the sandbags, the wall was supposed to be sandbags. It looked just like sandbags from the outside, but they were made of pillows. Mm-hmm. So it was a play on this false sense of security that we've developed as as Americans, you know, middle class, upper middle class, with our our comfort and our creature comforts and our domestic freedoms, right? Mm-hmm. But but how secure, how comfortable are we really now after mm. what happened on 9-11? So, you know, it wasn't a surprise for a lot of other people in the world what happened, but it was a total shock to most of us. And we're still dealing with it every day in this country. That's so profound and so important, an important perspective that we don't talk about as often. When you see people around the world already knew about it or were aware, were not surprised when it happened. What do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, even Western Europe has been processing and healing from terrorism, domestic and foreign, for decades, right? And they're still, in in most of Europe and the Middle East, you're still recovering from a global war, a mm-hmm. decade, decades of global war, which we were involved in, but again, from a safe distance. So there's just much more awareness of conflict and the causes and effects of those conflicts mm-hmm. where we're just dealing with our own sort of domestic disputes mm-hmm. here, North versus South, Midwest versus the coasts. You know, we have our issues, but they rarely become sort of violent in the way that I think it happens more often in other parts of the world. I want to extend this conversation a little more um, and then we'll go back to your art. When you started to do more investigation of what was happening around the world or what is happening around the world, did you see any role that U.S. foreign policies may have played into a lot of stuff that's happening around the world. I think for me, being somebody who's who likes to read hmm. and dive into this stuff, I quickly realized that the more I knew, the less I knew. Oh. That I realized as soon as I started to learn a little bit about, say, you know, the history of Lebanon, for example, uh, I think I did a paper in high school where I had to read article after article after article. And and it's like, it doesn't, you can't go back just 20 or 30 years to mm-hmm. find clarity. You're going back hundreds and then a thousand years. Yeah. And it's just, it becomes quickly overwhelming to anyone. And especially someone who doesn't have a political science or mm. history degree. Like it's it's a lot to do. And I see why. Most Americans probably just throw up their hands at trying to understand. Whereas if you live closer and you've experienced more of this history directly, 
it has a pattern and you understand it intuitively and you can follow all the lines. You know, it's so fascinating that you you're talking about this because I feel as somebody who grew up in a different part of the world that everybody outside the US understands why these things happen a lot more mm-hmm. than folks in the US, right? And sometimes when I, and I can give my example, I engage in these conversations with other folks, it's very difficult to get my point across or to understand their point of view because it's, in most instances, narrowly defined by what the media is portraying. A few institutions are talking about because there's a narrative that's dictated in the U.S. And I thought growing up in Pakistan that U.S. is this one place where media is completely independent. Yeah, I can see this look on your face. I was naive. That's what they told us all these years. It's so interesting because when I came here, I was like, Hmm, that's not the whole story, right? Paula, I want to pivot a little and go back to your political activism in a different context. Can you talk a little bit about Laundry Exhibition? I was doing research on you mm-hmm. and I came across it and I was like in awe of what it was, what it is, and it is a collaborative effort, right? Sure. So can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of response have you seen around that particular exhibition? So that was not um, an original concept of mine, certainly. I watched uh, some local Facebook groups while one young woman, a mother, tried to share uh, a long thread around a hashtag, thanks Pelham, that peer of hers had had begun right after George Floyd was killed. Mm. And it was a sarcastic thanks Pelham hashtag where uh, this group of, of young adults, you know, not children, people in their 20s, sort of ripped the wound off of their own experience growing up in Pelham. And a lot of them are still local, not necessarily in Pelham, but right near it. And it's a sundown town. Pelham was very clearly white supremacy in its origins Hmm. from, I don't know what period, you know, there was conscious effort to keep it white for a long time. And it's, it's in a part of New York that is really majority minority, let's face it, at this point. And maybe that's recent, but you have to work hard to stay that white in that part of New York right now, I think. <laughs> and so their experiences were really painful and, and there was a ton of racism and aggression toward these different young people. And they were children when most of these experiences mm. occurred. So the the sort of testimony one woman tried to share in a like a mom's group that is primarily older or like my age. So they're in their 20s. I'm in my 40s. And most of the members of this group are probably upper 30s to 50s. And they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to see it. The The moderator of the group kept taking it down. It broke their rules because it was uh, screenshots. But there was, I think, and I can't prove it, more going on than that. So that didn't happen. And then it was transcribed into text so that it could be shared in 
a couple of groups and the reactions were really polarizing. So mm. a lot of people felt tremendous empathy and sorrow around what these people were sharing. And a lot of people were, were just denying it. They're like, that doesn't happen here. Pelham, everybody gets along. Why can't we just be colorblind and be friends? Yeah, that's um, such BS. I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Paula. But then you were able to display it, right? So I, you know, was one of the ones who was really appalled and horrified by the, but not that surprised by the things that these people shared. And so I approached the two women who had collected all the the testimony and I was helping them sort of disseminate it online. But I really felt that it would have more impact if it became solid mm. and tangible and I'm, you know, in your face. Like it's much easy to, easier to scroll on by in a social media context than if it's sort of human size and in your community. That was my thought. And I approached them and said, what if we found a way to display this, you know, in town where people couldn't just ignore it? Mm. And um, we drafted a proposal for the Pelham Arts Center. And the, a lot of the exhibit being able to happen was just sort of luck and timing. Um, because of COVID, the Pelham Arts Center was without an outdoor exhibition at the time. Uh -huh. And so there was a brief window where we could take over their courtyard with this installation. And the Palm Art Center was really um, supportive and encouraging. And without that avenue, it wouldn't have happened. Because the, the public piece of it on public land, we learned later, was not going to, it was not going to be permitted. You know, there is so much to unpack in this mm -hmm. conversation. But first, I want to give a shout out to those two women yeah. and honor them. Can we name them? Yes, please. Astony Montiel was sort of the facilitator because she's a mother hmm. and she was in these groups. And Sabrina Harris was the woman who started the hashtag. And she um, is really brave and not afraid to hmm. um, cause a stir. And sometimes... People tend to be brave in their vulnerability, right? Exactly. Because exposing racism makes you vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. um, recognizing one's own racism makes us vulnerable. There's always blowback. There is always blowback. And I wish I knew and I've been trying to find <laughs> answers why people get so uncomfortable around the idea of racism in the U.S. Surprisingly, even those who identify as progressives, because progressivism, and can I say this, um, at least for listeners, if you don't know, Paula is white. I feel like white progressivism is centered around comfortable issues. So for we sure. can talk about climate change. It's okay to talk about climate change. It's more palatable. We can talk about some other issues that will not be conflicting or will not trigger certain emotions. But when it comes to racism, a lot of white people, even progressive white people, think that they are not racists. Do you have a theory, Paula, as to why people think that? And what does it mean to be white in this day and age for you? 
It's a tough one. It's There's so much in that one. Can we do that one at a time? Absolutely. So the first question is why white progressives have such a hard time with issues around race, talking about racism and racial inequality. And I just want to give a disclaimer. I don't expect Paula to speak for all <laughs> white people. Right. That happens to us. And I know it's really annoying. I'm just trying to give yeah, your, one perspective, perspective. your perspective sure. on it. So I haven't read White Fragility yet, but I think that Robin D'Angelo's book, and I am reading right now Nice Racism, mm. which is particularly geared toward progressives. I feel so much recognition in listening to that book. Yeah. I've, I've, I've experienced the sort of examples she gives on so many occasions. So I think progressives don't want to be lumped in with the policies that enforce, sort of enforce and maintain racism. But mm. they also don't want to look inward. We don't want to look inward mm. and say, oh, maybe that time I said that thing was like really racist. Yeah. And that's why I don't have that friendship. I don't feel that friendship as strongly as I did before. <laughs> it's really shaming. We feel shame mm. if we have to look into our own behavior. And I have done a ton of that over the last year and a half. And I know that many others are doing that. But some people won't. Many people can't. It's it's painful. You have to look at a side of yourself that you don't want to see. Mm -hmm. But if you do it, if we all do it, or most of us do it, we can build a better world, right? Starting with our own community. So I noticed in my community the lack of cross-racial friendships years ago, both my own mm -hmm. and my larger circle. And it's a diverse town. Like My kids went to a very diverse school, and it's not easy to make those friendships. And so I started to wonder about that long before George Floyd and Trump and this sort of awakening hmm. in our country. And I didn't know what to do about it, to be honest. It was painful. Hmm. So I think we're finally starting to talk about these issues in a much bigger way. In much the same way Me Too revealed a lot mm -hmm. about our culture, sadly, George Floyd died to show us how we need to talk about this mm. and get on with it and, and finally make things right or mm. closer to right. Welcome to Sufficiently Black, a show that explores what it means to be comfortable in your blackness despite living in a world obsessed with stereotypes. Host Kia, Amari, and Janae deep dive into black womanhood. Personally, I know that when I walk into the room, I'm seen as black first. Yeah. Then I'm seen as a woman. Mm -hmm. The glass ceiling is already like there. It's already above my head. It's, it's already above my head. Like shattering that bitch is real tough for me. Yeah. Identity. I feel beautiful. And my mom and like my mom's telling me my immediate family are telling me I'm beautiful. But everyone, everything else around me is telling me like I'm not beautiful. And so it was never I never wanted to be lighter skinned or white. I just wanted the fucking privilege <laughs> that came along with being light and culture. It doesn't matter how much money you have as a black person. You will never in your life. You could say I'm not black. I'm OJ. You could say whatever you want but you still are going to be black. It doesn't matter. 
through a critical lens as they navigate their way through adulthood. I want to look back at this year and say, damn, like that was a comfy ass fun year. That's what I want. Like I want this year to be like I'm running around in sweatpants, but have a glittery top in, like figuratively. Join us every other Tuesday for funny. And this is why I'm angry, yo. Because I'm like, damn, I was giving so much energy to these boys who like could not call what we were doing what it was, which is a relationship, dude. Like it's a relationship and I'm giving this all this goodness to you when I could be giving it to myself or someone else. And intellectual conversations. In order for black people to survive, you have to play a game of not being yourself. About what it means to be sufficiently black trying to mind my business and be black that's basically about it available wherever you listen to podcasts bye, bye. what does it mean to be white how has your white identity and i want to be clear there are many dimensions to mm-hmm. your identity not just white we all of have course. so many even invisible intersections right oh yeah um but this is something that we are talking more on this season because it is about representation and we cannot talk about representation without talking about whiteness and its impact on representation so what does it mean to you now in this moment so i come from a very white new england typical sort of wasp family you know we can trace our ancestry back to the Mayflower or around there. Mm. But there's also plenty of immigrants who joined that mm. that ancestral line. So I'm just your average Northern European white person. However, I grew up in Brooklyn, the Bronx, and New Rochelle, and my parents were a little unconventional. They were not like married to this idea of living in a quote-unquote, good school district, Mm. staying in a familiar place. So there were many, many moments in my childhood where I was the only white kid. That's interesting. And and it's not that common, I'm finding out now. (laughs) I had no idea until I was in my probably 20s, late 20s, that that's just not how this country works. Right. And I did notice, even in my very diverse community of New Rochelle as a teenager, that the communities were sort of developed along racial lines. Mm. Certain people lived in this part of town, certain people lived in that part of town. And so I guess I just was always sort of aware of things without having kind of the language for that awareness. So I was ready when um, Thanks Pelham showed up. Yeah. And people finally start talking. I was ready to jump in there and and keep yeah. the conversation going. To be white now means, to me, to really be paying attention mm-hmm. and to be quiet for once. There's a lot of white people that are really used to leading, quote-unquote, conversations yeah. about everything. And now it's our turn to kind of, like, take a back seat and be led is the way I view it. Personally. I love it. And it's a profound learning curve, right? <laughs> Being able to do that and to resist that urge to occupy spaces that other folks uh, are occupying, right? And I want to stay on this topic because I'm just curious, do you feel there are aspects of white American culture that have yet to be 
represented in the media. And by that, I mean stories around impact of whiteness on marginalization of different communities, whether it's through privilege, complacency, intention, or even subconscious biases. Do you think we should be seeing more of that in mainstream media um, and we are not seeing it as much? The, the predominant narrative still is that of white savior rather than having that introspective approach. We see that more within non-traditional artistic platforms. Well, I'll be honest. I probably don't consume a lot of mainstream media. Good for you. I like that. (laughs) It's going to be hard for me to really key into that. As an artist, I probably tend to be on the cutting edge of media consumption. Like I'm a little bit ahead of things. So Mm. culturally, I will have more in common with somebody like 10 years younger than me than Mm. somebody 10 years older than me. Mm. Um, But that said, I do find the arts are leading this. I think that we were just talking about this with friends last night, that, you know, popular culture, whether it's music, television, which is really sort of like the the thing we're all consuming the most right now, theater, I think that we're seeing just in a couple, just in a year, so much more representation Mm. and so many more stories from the edges being brought to the center that we we're already making progress. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's unbearable for many people. And so so we're seeing both the charge in a new direction and the backlash at the same time. Mm. So I think um, it's it's going to be a real struggle the next few Mm. years to see sort of which which side gets to lead. How do you think we bring in white folks into the fold and have them listen to these stories, right? Mm -hmm. And not just work in silos. Um, Because, again, representation means representation across the board and how it's happening, right? Well, behind most white people, there's an immigrant story, Mm. even if it's not their own. Right. I mean, most of us in America are only one or two generations from our immigrant, yeah, our own personal immigrant, right? So I think if you can connect with the generational inheritance of those white folks, mm. the ones whose parents immigrated from Ireland three generations ago, or even their parents, mm. right? Or Italy. I mean, I know plenty of people whose parents moved here mm. and were first generation and a lot of them are super proud of what those parents or grandparents overcame. Mm -hmm. And then there's others who, while they're super proud of that, don't have any empathy for the newest group of immigrants. For the newcomers, yes. And, And you see even people who immigrated here having no time or space. That's true. For new immigrants. So just telling those stories and sort of, unwrapping how that story connects to this new group of Afghan refugees. Right. Or Haitian 
right. refugees running for their lives. Like, they're not evil people. Yeah. And they're desperate. But so was your grandmother or aunt or whoever. And we have to be able to accept everyone's narrative. It's not yeah. just one or the other. It's we all have our own experience and we all have to be at least empathetic. The least you can do is try to be empathetic. You don't necessarily have to donate or give them a place to live, but you, to just yeah. try to open it up to understanding. That's so true. But I also feel like as humans, we are tribal in nature and we are hardwired to gravitate towards people or folks who look like us physically or who can identify with us culturally. And I feel like that is the most challenging thing to break through that idea of, you know, being in these silos and just look at our shared humanity because at the end of the day, we all have similar emotions. We all have similar strengths and weaknesses and aspirations and frustrations, which many don't. And for me, it's like I'm learning every day from every guest that I have mm-hmm. on my show. And that's the most rewarding thing of you know what I'm doing here. But it's true. You're right. This idea of having immigrant identity in America and making it somehow so alien is just mind-boggling because as you said everybody in America has immigrant lineage in some ways they are either two three generations away or they have a parent who's an immigrant they are themselves immigrants and yet immigrant identity has become such a I guess, polarizing attribute in a way. I'll say I think that the the nature of competition that America yeah. thrives on and drives home is really part of it. That's you true. Know? And I'm not a, I'm certainly not a communist. I would probably fall into the social democrat ideology, but... I'm with you there. But like, you know, if if you're... So we also read... Progressive Woman in Pelham read um, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee over the summer. And she really sort of makes it so clear when she talks about a zero-sum game. Right. And and America, because of its, its structure from the beginning with slavery, has yeah. really forced us to look at everyone as competition. And and at the same time has set up this this hierarchy, this caste system where the white wasp is is like that's what you want. That's the goal. The rich white wasp yeah. life, right? Has even in my childhood, that was the thing you aspired to. And every person who comes here aspires to that approximation, unfortunately. Right. And if you are already kind of in that club. Anyone who's trying to get in is mm. a potential threat. Yeah. It's not a share the wealth kind of country. Wow. That's <laughs> incredible. That is so true. That is so on point. How do you see your work in the future evolve with the kind of mindset that you have right now? 
um, what are some of the changes you've experienced or you hope to experience through your artistic work? It's a tough one for someone who's been struggling to make work with all of the responsibilities of motherhood and uh. so on. But I would say my first goal is to just finish some work uh. <laughs> and then see where it goes. Like it's it's really hard to to have a goal when you're making art because part of the process is discovery. So, right. you know, I started a painting 17 years ago that I really feel like I've only just finished. Wow. And it's topical and it's personal, but it's like I'm not really in charge necessarily. Huh. Time and mood and circumstances are as well. So for me, whatever I can get done in the studio. And I think my next goal after that is just to have the ability to show it, yeah. to have people see it and appreciate it or critique it. Like it's, it's been my own private little world of frustration and anxiety for mm. the last wow. <laughs> 12 years. Now it's time for it to start coming together and moving out of my studio. So that's one project that you're already working on. Yeah. That's I have several wonderful. pieces in process yeah. that, you know, just don't want to sort themselves out. <laughs> Is there something that really stands out to you, something that you're really excited to share with everyone? No, I'm very shy. <laughs> <laughs> just just getting, just the idea of finishing something apparently is yeah. really tough. Um, I think, you know, I'm just, I'm finally figuring it out, just how to be yeah. confident in my work and... And not anxious. Have you ever thought of more collaborative work? Because your laundry exhibition, as I said, yeah. is such a profound, I would love to such collaborate. an important work, right? Yeah. Is there anybody particular in mind that you would like to collaborate with? I have no idea. I'm open. <laughs> there is this long list of guests I want on my podcast, um, and I've been stalking them, but it hasn't really worked so far. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm always curious to know as artists and as creators, do we have these milestones or goals that we are working towards? Oh, yeah. I'm sure most artists do. Mm -hmm. but But for somebody like me, I have a very hard time putting my work first, prioritizing yeah. that. And and I think that's probably common among women. That's true. Hopefully yeah. not as much in younger generations. Yeah. Um, but I guess just, you know, making it a priority is the first thing. That's so true. That's another intersectionality or dimension that we don't talk about as much and the kind of... Um, pressures that we face and the guilt that we go through. Although I think I've just learned to live with that guilt now. Um, or or like instead of letting your own work fall by the wayside, let the dishes fall by the wayside. Right. <laughs> Order that, in more if you have to. True. Like just not needing to excel at everything is really hard. So, Paula, in the end, if you were to describe America, how would you do that? I think it's still an experiment. I think we're still figuring it out. And we're less burdened 
mm-hmm. by other countries, less burdened than other countries in that trial and error phase because we're sort of on our own here. I mean, not really, but we have so much more sort of space and resources in a way yeah. that we can succeed bigger and also fail bigger. So it's it's an interesting place to live. I like that. I like that. Thank you so much. This was so good. I had so much fun. We could, you know, go on and on, but I know you're busy and we are pressed for time. This so. was really fun. Thank you for having me. I feel honored to be invited. Thank you so much. What do you think? I'll admit, it wasn't easy. I didn't know what to expect and how far I could go. But Paula made it easier. We were able to have conversation around racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, and inequities that exist within our society in a judgment-free space. And that's what matters. As long as we can try to understand each other's perspectives, that's all it takes to have a better community and a better society. If you liked this episode, give us thumbs up on whichever streaming platform you listen to your podcasts. Share and download. Subscribe to Immigrantly. We need people like you, our listeners, to help us grow and sustain these amazing conversations. Until next time, take care.